0: If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word they will keep yours also but all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know him who sent me if i had not come and spoken to them they would have no sin but now they have no excuse for their sin he who hates me hates my father also if i had not come among if i had not done among them the works which No one else did. They would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will testify of me and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning these things i have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble they will put you out of the synagogues yes the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers god service And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. Thus far, the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. God, Father, bless the reading and preaching and hearing of your word today, here in this place, convict us, encourage us, open our eyes, and give us the grace and the courage to repent of those sins that we see, and to walk in the truth, to walk with your spirit. Help us to do this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Every day, eight Christians worldwide are killed because of their faith. Every week, 182 Christian, uh, Christian buildings, Christian structures, sanctuaries are attacked, oftentimes with Christians inside. Every month, 309 Christians are imprisoned unjustly. These are the numbers reported in the 2020 World Watch List put out by Open Doors. They do an annual annual report on these things. And the same study indicated that, that during the same year, in the top 50 countries where Christians are most persecuted, not the only countries, but the top 50 where Christians are most persecuted, 260 million Christians suffered high to severe levels of persecution. And that number was up 15 million from the year before. In 2019, 40 nations scored very high on the persecution scale. In 2020, 45 nations registered very high. According to Open Doors, one in eight Christians worldwide worldwide faced significant high or very high or extreme levels of persecution. Two in five Asian Christians now face at least high level persecution. We we need to remind ourselves of these, these kinds of statistics regularly for at least two reasons. The first reason is that Hebrews thirteen three says remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners. Remember those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. The second reason, the one we'll focus more on today, is that we or our children or our grandchildren may someday face high or very high or extreme levels of persecution. God has protected us from that so far. Most, if not all of us here in, in this room, here today, have only ever faced low Or very low levels of persecution because of our commitment to Christ. But there's no guarantee that this will continue. Our nation and our culture continue to find new ways to express their hatred toward God, toward His Messiah, and toward His people. So we shouldn't be surprised if our low and very low levels of persecution turn into medium and even high-level persecution during our lifetimes. In fact, this is what Jesus and the New Testament exhort us to be ready for, to be prepared for. More important than preparing for an economic meltdown is preparing your faith and the faith of your children, your descendants, to be tested by severe maltreatment. Are you prepared to count it all joy when you suffer severely for the name of Jesus? A few weeks ago, I preached on Revelation 12, which says that Satan is is presently enraged. He's full of great wrath, it says, because of his defeat at Calvary. And in response to this defeat, Romans 12, 17 says, says that the devil, the dragon, he's called, continues to make war with those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. This war against the saints will persist until Jesus returns. Satan's rage and the persecution that it produces will will continue to get worse as the gospel continues to, to spread, and the nations continue to be discipled. In today's sermon text from John 15 and 16, Jesus warns his disciples that the world will hate the church just as surely as it hated him. And, and in their hatred of us, the world will lash out at us. And John 15, 18 to 25, Jesus explains why the world hates Christians. And then in John 15, 26 to 16, 4, Jesus tells us how to respond to this hatred. What do we do when we face this kind of hatred? But first, let's remember where we are in the story in John's gospel, starting in chapter 13 and going all the way through chapter 17, John records Jesus' teachings, his his instructions to his followers on the eve of his death, on on the Thursday night before his Friday crucifixion. And so Jesus has been preparing his disciples to follow him, to seek his kingdom, to live righteously after he returns to heaven. And he's focusing on forming the, his, his church, his body, this new community that the world will recognize as something supernatural because of its fruit, because of its love. Last week, we saw that four of these fruits are obedient love for Christ, sacrificial love for one another, unspeakable joy, and empowered prayer. Now Jesus turns his attention to the world's hatred in the midst of this. The world's hatred directed at this new community that he's forming, that he will establish principally in his death on the cross and his resurrection. Jesus tells us about persecution and suffering, about hatred and animosity. In this passage, the word hate occurs Seven times in the Greek text. And so there's a fullness or a completeness to the world's hatred of Christ and his people. And Jesus explains the reasons for this hatred. And then he arms his disciples to face it. As we think about this hatred, this, this worldly hatred... We need to be thinking about two things at the same time as we read a passage like this. We need to be thinking about preparing ourselves to respond in a godly way to this sort of thing. But we also need to make sure that we are seeing in our still sinful hearts traces of this kind of hatred, perhaps, lingering in our hearts. And we need to repent of that. But, but primarily, Jesus is equipping. He's informing and equipping. He's making sure that we're not surprised by the sort of things that we will face. So why does the, why does the world hate Christians? Verses 18 to 25 give five reasons. The first reason the world hates Christians is that it hates Jesus. Verse 18 if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. So if Jesus was hated, so will you be hated if you're one of his followers. It's just, it's, it's guaranteed. And did the world hate Jesus? Well, less than 24 hours after Jesus spoke these words, he was arrested on trumped up charges, tried for crimes he didn't commit, Mocked, beaten, and crucified as a criminal. The whole world, Jews and Gentiles alike, hated Jesus. And and it continues to hate Jesus, even as the gospel continues to make inroads. The second reason the world hates Christians is that Jesus has called us out of the world. Verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. So if you were in if you were of the world you'd be loved by the world yet because you are not of the world but I chose you out of the world therefore the world hates you So when Jesus called to himself these disciples and us he called us out of something he didn't call us out of a vacuum he called us out of the domain of darkness He rescued us out of the ranks of rebellion. And those who are still in that rebellion, who are still in that darkness, hate us for being called out of it, for being pulled out of the mire that they're still in. D.A. Carson writes in his commentary. Quote "...former rebels who have by the grace of the king been won back to loving allegiance to their rightful monarch are not likely to prove popular with those who persist in rebellion." End quote. 1 Peter 2.9 says, "...but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession." The King James says, "...a peculiar people." that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So if, if we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a peculiar people, and we've been called out of darkness into the marvelous light, then we must flee every temptation to fit in to that darkness, to fit in with the world. And we must recognize that the temptation can be strong. It's probably been stronger at certain times of your life. There's a desire in all of us, no matter how much we say we don't care what people think, there is a desire in all of us to be loved and appreciated by all, including the world. To be respected by the cool kids. And this desire for acceptance by the world has led some believers to make shipwreck of their faith. And this happens because they fail to accept that the world's disapproval is part and parcel of what Christians will often have to face in this life. So you you may not want to stand out at work. You may not want to be the oddball. At work, But Jesus says, I have called you out of darkness, out of the world into my marvelous light. That's going to mean being odd sometimes. As one preacher put it, fitting in with the world is the exact opposite of why Jesus chose us and called us and saved us and sends us. If fitting in with the world were the goal, Jesus wouldn't have to do anything. The purpose of our salvation is wrapped up in living Distinctly, end quote. That verse in 1 Peter 2 that, that, that the King James quote says, uh, peculiar people, that, that verse goes on to say that our peculiarity serves a purpose. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So the world will hate you because you're different. And you're different... Because Jesus called you out of darkness and made you different by His grace. and your difference is not merely on the surface it's not merely external it goes all the way down to your core if you've made if you've been made different by Jesus and then it it, it, it works its way out from your core it works its way out in the form of spiritual fruit so the way we're peculiar is that we pray powerfully we love Christ with obedient love we rejoice with unspeakable joy and we love one another sacrificially. All of this is impossible for the worldly person. And even for some professing Christians who are not vitally connected to the vine Jesus Christ. To be called out of the world to me, means to be a follower of Jesus. And, and where, does, where did Jesus go? Where are we following him? to the cross as someone said you can't follow a crucified savior and not expect a cross if our sinless Lord died because of the world's hatred we shouldn't be surprised if if something similar happens to us especially since we are not sinless it's helpful to remember that While worldly hatred is personal, no doubt it's personal. Hatred is always personal. It's not directed primarily at you. You're not the main target. I'm not the main target. According to verse 20, Jesus is. You see, the third reason that the world hates Christians is that we serve the one the world hates. Verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. When the world hurts Christians, it's primarily about Jesus, not us. Their intended target is God, the one that they hate the most. But they can't reach him. So they settle for taking it out on his followers. That, that's, that's true of Satan as well, as we saw in Revelation 12, remember. The dragon has to go after the people of God. Why? Because the victory of Jesus at Calvary on the cross expelled Satan from heaven. Once and for all, the devil has been cast to earth and his only recourse is to go to war With the church here on earth Satan and the world hate Jesus but they can't get to him so they aim at Christians they aim for his body which is him of course in a real sense Jesus is the head we are his body and when you when they mess with the body they mess with Jesus but they're aim really is to hurt jesus that's the primary focus think of acts 5 40 and 41 they that is the the jesus hating religious leaders pharisees they called the apostles in and had them flogged beaten then they ordered them not to speak in the name of jesus and let them go the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Not for themselves, but for the name. These, the grievance of, the, of these religious leaders was not with the disciples primarily. It was with the disciples' master. They flogged, they flogged the followers because they hated the one they followed. And the, the disciples got this. They understood exactly what was happening. And it's why they rejoiced when they were beaten. Because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. Many, many baptized Christians never come face to face with the worldly hatred here like this. Because... They don't follow Jesus. If you're you're a football player, then the other team won't worry about you just because you're wearing the other team's jersey. You're you're wearing your jersey. You're not on their team. They're not going to hate you. They're not going to worry about you just because you don't have their jersey on. They're only going to worry about you if you're a force to be reckoned with on the field, in the game. Satan and the world only hate the Christians who actually play for Jesus. They're not worried about you just because you're wearing a Christian jersey. They're not worried about you just because you've been baptized and you go to church and you wear a cross necklace or a Christian t-shirt or put something on Facebook. They're only worried about you if you're a force to be reckoned with in the world, on the playing field. The fourth reason the world hates Christians is that they don't know God. Verse 21. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know him who sent me. One commentary puts it insightfully. Quote, sometimes Christians act surprised by the world's behavior. Too often we expect the world to live in obedience to God. We think a bunch of non-Christians should act like Christians. Jesus reminds us that the world is estranged from God. In verse 21, The world is living in open rebellion against the Creator. Whenever we're shocked by the world's behavior, it's because we've forgotten the world's condition. The world acting like the world is not shocking. End quote. So we can't expect to change the world through political reform or with persuasive arguments or by imposing God's law on society, the change must happen at the heart level first. A person and persons, communities, institutions, they, they must be changed by the gospel from the inside out before anything good and fruitful can happen. Until a person knows God he hates God and ultimately he will hate everything God is about even if that hatred is not always made manifest entirely the fifth and final reason the world hates christians is that jesus has exposed their sin and this might be perhaps the main one it's the one jesus focuses on the most on the most at least in this in this passage. Look again at verses 22 to 25. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled which is written in their law they hated me without cause. Of course, Jesus is not saying that they're literally without sin until he exposed it with his words and his deeds. What he's saying is that now their their sin that was already there can be seen for what it is. Being a faithful Christian means dealing with hatred that's without cause. Often, this worldly hatred that, that Jesus is talking about here will come from outside the church. In Jesus' case, it came primarily from those within the household of God, from His chosen people that He came to save and rescue. Jesus came to His own people, preaching and teaching like no one had. He did miracles, He says, that no one had done ever He was removing the darkness from Israel and restoring her to health. And the people hated him for it. They had their own stated reasons for hating Jesus. They accused him of all kinds of things for deceiving the people, for destroying their theological traditions. But most of their charges, we know, were composed of lies and half-truths. And so in verse 25, Jesus quotes Psalm 69, 4 and simply says that their hatred is without a cause. Now, he doesn't mean that there was literally no cause whatsoever, right? What he's saying is there's no legitimate cause, no good reason. So why did they hate Jesus? What was the illegitimate cause? Well, they hated him perhaps most of all, because he exposed their guilt and their shame, their sin. He, 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 he tore off the roof and he shined a bright light on their nakedness. The light of the world entered the world that had become pitch black by sin. And he shone like the July sun at midday. He exposed the wickedness for what it was. And instead of repenting, these false believers desperately looked for a dark place to hide. John 3:19. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. That's, that's the natural response of worldly hatred, is to retreat to darkness. Worldly worldly hatred often lashes out because of a guilty conscience. The words and deeds of Christ expose the world's sin and then trigger its hatred. And how should we respond to this hate? Not with anger, not with vengeance, but with a sort of sympathy. Sympathy. When he was being stoned, Stephen echoed the words of Christ on the cross. Stephen said, Lord, do not hold their sin against them. Jesus says elsewhere, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So this, this should be how we train ourselves. This, this should be the, the, the knee-jerk response to this kind of maltreatment the love, the sympathy of Jesus and Stephen and of Christians throughout the ages who have endured persecution, fiery trials. Verse 26 through verse 4 of chapter 16 answer the question, how should believers respond to the world's hatred in a little bit more depth? The first answer Jesus gives is to keep bearing faithful witness. Keep testifying to the truth to Jesus Christ. Look at the last two verses in John 15. But when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So there's a twofold promise here. And these two verses, verse 26 promises that the spirit will bear witness. And then verse 27 promises that believers will testify or bear witness. And this is really one promise. It's one twofold promise. The point is that the spirit will empower believers to testify of the truth. To testify about Jesus, the spirit who lives in you. Helps you to speak the truth about Jesus Christ, your Savior. You aren't left to bear witness on your own, with your own resources. God's Spirit has been sent to empower God's people to bear witness to God's Son. God's Spirit has been sent to empower God's people to bear witness. To God's Son, you could say that Jesus has given you divine reinforce- reinforcements for the job. Now, up in verses twenty-two to twenty-five, we saw that Jesus bore witness to himself to the truth through his words and through his deeds. The same is true for us. Same is true for you. The, the, the gospel that we bear witness to is something that we bear witness to through our words and our deeds. And, and it takes both. You can't just be a deeds guy and you can't just be a words guy. So what is it about Jesus that we bear witness to? We testify fundamentally that Jesus Christ has come to take away the sins of the world through his death on a Roman cross and through his resurrection three days later. We proclaim this message through our words and we embody it in our deeds. If you're imitating your master well, your words and deeds will often have the same effect that Jesus' words and deeds had. Jesus' words and deeds exposed sin. Now, now, we're not called to do it exactly the same way Jesus did it. But, but love does compel us to be honest about sin, starting with our own sins, of course, but also about the sins of those who don't know God. And even those who do know God but cannot see their sins. Whatever God calls sin, we must call sin starting in our own hearts. Identifying our own sin first. And, and one of the reasons we should practice biblical hospitality with, with one another, but also with outsiders, is that the message of the gospel that we want to take to these outsiders is offensive. It's got some hard realities in it. It it shines a light on sin. To present the truth honestly, we must tell a sinner that he is guilty before God, and we must tell him what his destiny is, what his future is. But, But the purpose of the gospel's offense is to bring them into the family of God. through the cross, through repentance, through faith in Jesus. Hospitality then is a, is a gospel deed because it reflects the love and the reconciliation and the fellowship that God offers to the world in Jesus. So you can see how they go hand in hand, word and deed. Hospitality in presenting the gospel. Maybe that's something that we can work on as a congregation is not only hospitality to one another, but hospitality to the world, to those outside, showing them in word, showing them in deed and saying to them in word the truth about Jesus. The book exalting Jesus in John that I've quoted from already a few times in this series, it sums it up this way. Quote, Bearing witness to Jesus requires honesty about sin and a willingness to be rejected. No one enjoys rejection. We guard our feelings and friendships to prevent rejection. We'll often cut off off a relationship relationship if it seems headed to, for rejection, When it comes to witnessing about Jesus, we must embrace rejection. In rejection, we find fellowship with Jesus. Jesus was rejected. And when his people are rejected on his account, we find unique fellowship and identification with him. When we fear rejection... By the world, we refuse to be identified with Jesus. Rejection by the world means we've joined Jesus outside the camp, where the criminals go, where the despised are sent, where the scum go to die. Whom do we want to be accepted by? Those inside the camp will accept us as long as we're willing to stay silent about Jesus. Or we can speak up, face rejection, and choose to go where Jesus is, outside the wall, outside the circle, outside the city limits. The fear of being hated and rejected by the world often keeps us from speaking about Jesus. Don't stop witnessing. If you've been silent, start speaking now. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit To help you share the truth about him. End quote. The second answer Jesus gives to the question, how do believers respond to this hatred, is to stand firm, to persevere to the end. Don't stumble, Jesus says here in the text. Look at the beginning of John 16. We'll read halfway through verse 4. These things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you that when the time comes, you may remember... That I told you of them. Here, Jesus is honest with his followers about the cost of discipleship. He didn't promise it would be easy. He didn't promise health and wealth and luxury and tranquility. He said that they would throw you out of the religious gatherings, and and some of you will be killed. I often wonder what the prosperity gospel proponents do with passages like this. Following Christ makes you rich spiritually, but it comes at a great cost. Anyone who tells you that following Christ is the best, is the best path to worldly prosperity is selling you something. Following Jesus often leads to pain in this life. The lack of high-level persecution in the West, especially in America, is historically somewhat abnormal. The history of the church is, is filled with martyrs. And today, more Christians face significant persecution than any other time. As the early church theologian, Tertullian, famously put it, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And our, our family history is filled with bloody martyrdom. And so we might ask, why have so many Christians been Willing to pay such a high price to follow the Lord, to follow Christ? And the simple answer is that the prize is worth it. And when I said prize, what did you think of? The prize is Christ Himself, Jesus Himself is worth your cross your pain. He's, he's worth whatever price you have to pay in this fallen creation where we deal with all kinds of aches and pains physically, spiritually, emotionally. He's worth the price that you must pay. In the face of persecution, don't stumble. Don't think it strange or tragic don't engage in self pity and ask why me or why again instead rejoice and give thanks that, that God's spirit is equipping you giving you everything that you need to suffer for and with Jesus to share in his suffering faithfully faithfully for his sake, 1 Peter 4, 12-14 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The the greatest danger that we face in times of fiery trials is not physical, but spiritual. In fact, our, our greatest danger all day, every day, is the temptation to believe that this life is more valuable than Jesus. And this, tip, this temptation takes a particular shape in the midst of fiery trials. But David says in Psalm 63, 3, because, of your, steadfast, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Because your love, your, your chesed, your steadfast love is better than life my lips will praise you. Living your life for your Savior, living for Jesus, might cause others to despise you. It might cause you to face worldly hatred, even from those close to you. But Jesus says, blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. In the face of affliction, don't stumble, don't fall. Keep walking, keep trusting, keep clinging to Jesus who went before you. The 18th century missionary John Peyton, sometimes pronounced Patton, John Peyton served among the cannibals, on the new Hebrides islands. And his suffering was monumental, and he regularly came face to face with death. And he wrote this, Life in such circumstances led me to cling very near to the Lord Jesus. I knew not for one brief hour when or how attack might be made. And yet, with my trembling hand clasped, in the hand once nailed to Calvary, and now swaying the scepter of the universe, calmness and peace and resignation abode in my soul. End quote. When you face persecution, afflictions, fiery trials, imitate Peyton, cling to the hand that was once nailed on Calvary, which is the same hand hand that wields the scepter of the universe. I'll close with Hebrews uh, 13 verses 12 to 14. Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Let's pray. Father, give us hearts and minds that seek not a city that does not last, but the city that is to come, that is eternal. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, to set our minds on things above, where Christ is and where we are seated with Him in heaven. We need your help to do this. We need your help to endure faithfully. We also need your help to rid us of the lingering sin, the lingering worldly hatred, so that we can love the way you loved, so that we can bless even our enemies the way you blessed your enemies. We confess that we need your help and we ask for it now by the power of your spirit in the name of Jesus, amen.